If I were to mention to you in a conversation the topic of financial trauma, would you avoid the conversation and stay absolutely quiet? Would you consider yourself to have financial trauma? Or are you like me and many other Latinos where we think that other people have had it worse than us? Y que hay que agradecer por lo que ya tenemos. We have to be grateful for what we have. Or maybe you think, who are you to think you have trauma? Toughen up. No matter where you lie, chances are you have some sort of financial trauma but haven't recognized it yet, which is a big factor as to what is holding you back financially. In this two-part interview series, we are going to go really deep peeling back those layers of financial trauma in communities of color and how you can heal from it. So don't miss this special two-part series with the renowned TEDx speaker and author, Michael Thomas. You are listening to Her Dinero Matters, the podcast helping Latinas have increased confidence and control over their finances. My name is Jen Hempel, and as an accredited financial counselor, my mission is to help you be more confident and simplify your finances so you can save more, get out of debt quicker, and build your wealth. Our guest today is a knowledgeable individual who will detail how we can break the cycles of past generational traumas, allowing us to build wealth and enjoy discussing money matters. Dr. Michael Thomas is a well-known author, educator, and financial literacy program co-creator who is passionate about healing, wholeness, and money. He has delivered an impactful TEDx talk on financial empathy and co-hosts Nothing Funny About Money, a Gabby award-winning radio show. All right, let's go get started and meet Michael Thomas. Bienvenido, Michael Thomas. I am so thrilled to have you here. I know we've been connected for a while now, and I, well, you may not remember, but we first connected at the AFCP symposium. You did a phenomenal keynote, which I really just connected with several years ago. And then I had the pleasure of just serving just a little bit with you since I, uh, on the board for AFCP. So welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Yeah. Th thanks for having me. I, I appreciate you reaching out and honored to be on on the show yeah well i'm honored you're here because let me tell you as i mentioned the keynote you you really have a gift i feel like you have this gift of storytelling and a gift of just how you communicate and of a gift of connecting and in reading your book and knowing about your book, I really wanted to have you on because one, I think it's the themes and the topics that you cover in the book are very important to have one. And yes, you speak to black financial culture, but I feel there's definitely some relevancy. Did I say that word right? Relevancy? Okay, I say things <laughs> mixed up and to the Latino culture, uh, because just as in Black culture, you mentioned that there's that baked in trauma in the Latino culture, there is that trauma as well. There's different, you know, the immigration experience, which tends to be a little, you know, different. But of course, in the respective countries, there's also the history of slavery. So there's a lot of things. And so I'm really excited to dig in. So you ready for this? Absolutely. Let's go. Michaels, 
in this podcast, we always start off with going back in time. So if you could take us back in time, maybe to an experience, some, a memory that you have that really impacted you through today in terms of how you perceive money, how you view money, how you manage money. So talk to us about that. I would probably say one of the biggest memories I had was my mom made it so that I could earn an allowance to buy toys and stuff like that from the local toy store. And I learned opportunity cost very, very early. So what happened was I knew I wanted this particular toy. I had earned some money that week. I had all the money that I needed for that toy, but then we went to a store and as my mom would like to say, like the money was burning a hole in my pocket and I just needed to buy like some candy or whatever. Maybe it's just like, you're not gonna have enough to buy your toy. And I'm thinking, all right, I'll buy it. And then she'll just cover the difference, right? Like I'm a kid. I'm thinking like, I got this, right? Whatever. Uh, so we go to the we go to the toy store at the end of the week because she said she'd take me on Saturday. And I walk around, I find the toy and I'm like $2 short. And she says, so how are you going to pay for it? I was like, well, can you can you cover the difference? Can you do that? And she was like, nope, I'm not doing it. So you're going to have to do your chores for another week, save up, and then you can get the toy next week. And I said, man, I don't want to do that. Right. Again, she was like, all right, don't let that money burn a hole in your pocket. <laughs> and that's always her saying. We walk around the store and I say, all right, I don't want that toy anymore. I want this other toy. I spend maybe a few more dollars to get this toy, get to the house, unpackage it, start playing with it. And I just didn't like it whatsoever. So what ended up happening was that my mom wouldn't let me take that toy back for like an exchange or anything like that. So I had to work for an additional two weeks to get back to the toy store to get the toy that I really wanted. And after having that experience, I said, I'm never doing that again. So I'm really patient with things that I want. I'm okay with delaying gratification. Now, this story could be completely different. Right. So let's say I got the toy and I loved it. Right. So it really just kind of depends on context. But for my sake, I got something that didn't provide me any joy or fun, excitement, utility, etc. And it calls for me to be more intentional about not necessarily delaying gratification, but having clarity on what I desire and what I want. Right. And that really has served me well because I am I, like marketing doesn't do anything for me. Right? You can't have a good marketing tactic and get me off of my perch, so to speak, because I'm just very clear about this is what I want. I'll save for it. And I would rather not do something less than what I want, because that could actually extend me actually having what I wanted out of the experience, if that makes sense. So that was a really, really big one. And I thank my mom to this day for encouraging that and really allowing for allowing me to experience the outcome of my choice. And so when I teach, I say this all the time to my students. I was like, it's your money. Do with it whatever you desire to do. Just consider the outcomes of your choices. It's not for me to tell you how to navigate your final journey, your financial journey. I just want you to develop the habit of being aware and then considering the outcomes and being okay with that. Because if you make the choice, what I found, it's so much easier to course correct, right? And if we never frame our financial decisions where we do have choice as if it was our choice, then it's very hard for people to pivot 
from making bad choices because it's never their fault, right? It's never me, it's your choice. What do we learn from this experience, both the good and the not so maybe good outcome that we were hoping for, and then how do we grow from it? And that's life. I'm not perfect with money, even though I do this for a living. I don't know, I don't know anybody who is, quite honestly, but I'm not going to not allow myself to have important experiences and things of that nature because actually I've learned more through times where I wasn't getting it right and that solidified good behaviors as opposed to always getting it right, but not necessarily knowing why I'm getting it right and how I'm getting it right or understanding, right? Some people can navigate circumstances where you could actually get it horribly wrong, but because you're a high income earner and things of that nature, you're not experiencing the consequences of your actions. And that can be a slippery slope because I've worked with a lot of people over the years where they went from not having the high paying job anymore to making considerably less. And then all those bad habits that they had over the years were exacerbated because it couldn't be overcome by their earnings. Uh, so even then, am I really doing things right? Or is it just because I make more money, it doesn't really matter in this instance. So uh, that was my story. I'll stop there. <laughs> no, very, very interesting. And I already like your mom and I really love how she, the introductory piece of your book, it just, it was just so awesome that it was done with by your mom. Now I'm curious to know, do you feel, or do you think when she would tell you, you know, money, don't let money burn a hole in your pocket. And she didn't allow you to take that toy back. Do you think that was intentional? And she was very clear thinking, I'm going to teach my son about financial literacy or financial education, or because sometimes as parents, we do something, we just have this instinct, right? Uh, that this is what we should do. But maybe at that moment in time, we're not clear why we're doing it. We just feel like this is this is the right thing to do. So do you think it was more from the instinct of I'm teaching him financial education or, you know, things about money, or was it just more of a motherly instinct? Yeah, I, that's, that's a very good question. I, I think it's, I think it's very complex as like in the book, you, you see that story kind of weave itself throughout. I think it was a few things. I think one, it was my mom struggled with impulsive buying decisions. And what I think would happen, if, as, as I think about this in hindsight, that she was aware of her shortcomings and she wanted to teach me something differently than something that she had struggled with, if that makes sense. I grew up in a household where it was do as I say, not as I do, so to speak, right? So there, this awareness is there. The hope is that the next generation is gonna do better than we did. Almost as if we are fixed and we can't change, we can't evolve. And my hope is in my children or, or in my children. And I think that that's a lot of what that was at that point in time. And yeah, my mom was, she didn't go to college. She always wanted me to go to college. She didn't really go to church. She always wanted me to go to church. She wasn't particularly good with money. So much better now, quite honestly, in terms of her story and her arc and narrative. But she wanted me to be good with money. So literally across the board, everything that she wasn't, where maybe she didn't feel empowered to change for herself, she didn't allow for that to stop her from trying to influence me and my sister in a positive way. I love that and I appreciate you sharing that. Now, before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you. 
Ready to transform your financial life with ease and confidence? Discover the Her Dinero Matters Money Planner, your ultimate digital tool for simplifying money management with its unique blend of psychological insights and practical budgeting tools. This planner is not just about tracking expenses, but about rewriting your money story. Whether you're aiming for big financial goals or everyday financial wellness, this planner is your personalized guide to simplify your money management and elevate your confidence. Download your copy today by visiting jenhemphill.com forward slash planner for more details and even get a sneak peek inside. Use the code Reina at checkout for 10% off. Let's dig in a little bit into your book uh, because as I mentioned, I've started reading it. I just want to sit down and not let anybody disturb me. <laughs> That's how good it is. And it's called Black Financial Culture, Building Wealth from the Inside Out. I'm curious to know, what was the drive behind this book? Why did you decide this? I need to get this book out. Honestly, Jen, I think I think this, the spirit of this book is very similar to why you do the work that you do. Neither of us when I think about our stories and our shared stories and the commonality of our stories was ever to, I'm going to go to college or I'm going to try to make a considerable amount of money. And then I'm just going to completely fall off the planet. So nobody knows where I am, who I am. I got mine. And then you move on, so to speak. There's a part of me that is always about community and money is important, but I think money is only important in connection to community as well. Because we use money to not just to uh, support a local business, but you're supporting a family, you're supporting a vision, you're supporting someone's artistry, especially when they do something beautifully well, right? Like you're, you're supporting a gift that then actually allows for them the space to focus in on their gift, to provide more value to the community. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. When I pursued higher education, and then ultimately my PhD at the University of Georgia. The reason was always let me go learn as much as I can so that I can provide information to households and families in general where they don't feel as if they have access or connection or the resources or the tools or quite honestly, somebody who actually cares about them and their circumstances and the systems that they navigate as well beyond just the financial knowledge that's being given to them. That's always really, really been big for me. And I did this as a way of giving back, right? I, I pursued my PhD as a way of serving. And that's very much so who I am. And this book is a, is a culmination of things, very much so a passion project more than anything else. I Like Jen, I had to write this book. It's like I've been sitting on this idea since 2017. The initial title is going to be The Thing She Never Knew She Taught Me. That was going to be like the initial idea of it was just taking these narratives and these stories. But the more and more I started to serve people and things of that nature, I wanted to just be just kind of be like very in your face with the title, something that would intrigue people to say, huh, I wonder what this is about, whether it's in a good way or in a bad way. I want to know what this is about. Right. And once you get into it, it's like you were saying earlier, even though there are elements here, I use a lot of themes, music movies, whatever it may be, right? Like if I go home right now, Fluffy is one of my favorite comedians, like on like uh, Netflix and things of that nature, but he caters to a very specific demographic, <laughs> right? 
If I go home and I start talking about Fluffy the comedian, who is, I, I don't know if he's from Mexico uh, or not, or if that's where his family origin and background is as it relates to it. But nobody in at home would know who Fluffy was in terms of who is this comedian, Latinx, or whatever it may be. They wouldn't know. But it doesn't mean that the jokes and the similarities and the cultural experiences don't have connective tissue. It's just who's delivering the message and who resonates with the message based on audience demographics, so on and so forth. So what I tried to do is layer in all of these financial messages that are universal in nature in a way that black households would feel like it resonates with them so that someone can actually pick it up and read it and actually feel seen. Representation matters, whether it's in book, whether it's in movies and all these different things. And you can connect to share experiences. The beauty with hip hop music in general though, is that it is so pervasive that if I use like a hip hop reference in a book, anybody can connect with that, right? Depending on the moment in time, if you were in school at that time, especially college, right? There is a, and that, this is the thing about the black experience though. There's a universality to the black experience because often what we say, even in the United States, hey, if we address social justice issues, which we could say could be born out of historical factors as it relates to African-Americans, uh, definitely historical factors as it relates to Latinx communities. Uh, we talk about Asian communities, so on and so forth, right? That's not a uniquely black experience historically. <laughs> we unpack it and we look at it. When you start to unpack these things, these narratives are very much so universal, but I try to write it in a way so that someone coming from Gary, Indiana, which is where I'm from, would be able to pick it up and see themselves in it. Because I don't think I really had that when I was growing up, like representation in book form in a way that doesn't just focus on the atrocities of slavery and historical perspectives, even though I touch on that briefly, I want to acknowledge it. I want to recognize it. But then I also feel as if there is such an amazing opportunity for black families and households, even just doing very small things as a collective to have a significant impact on wealth creation, on entrepreneurship, on prioritizing community, serving community, engaging in notions of healing and reconciliation, not just externally, but maybe even internally. Maybe I haven't forgiven myself and I'm still bounded by shame. Or maybe somebody has offended me and they've grown from that experience, but because I haven't healed, I continue to bound them, even though that they seek my grace, my forgiveness, and they're doing amazing, but there's still this hedge that I've placed over them that can even stunt and limit their capacity because they can continue to carry shame. And if this happens at a family level, then guess what? That happens that there's a generational impact. Then that means that families are no longer communicating, engaging, and we lose our strength the more and more that we're divided. And my hope is that through this book that we see people at least considering. I can't tell someone how they move in areas of forgiveness and things of that nature. That is a very deeply personal choice. And I respect it either way uh, if somebody's been hurt or offended. But I even share my own personal stories in that so people don't feel as if it's just me saying something because like I'm a PhD at the University of Georgia and then most people don't even know where I come from. They just see where I am. They don't understand my story. So there's nothing that I say in this book as a recommendation for somebody to consider, not telling people what to do. You own your own power. That's your choice. But are you owning your power to make your choice? 
and I'm challenging people every step of the way. And if whether you're a part of black culture, identify with black culture or not, those themes are universal. And I think that anybody can walk away from this book and say, you know what? I not only do I have a deeper understanding and connection for Michael, but I understand something a little bit more about the black experience. But I'm also seeing parallels in terms of, wow, there's not a whole lot of difference there in terms of some of the things that we're navigating. And then maybe there are. And if there are, like, wow, I didn't have to deal with that growing up. I wonder how that could have impacted someone. You had mentioned earlier, Jim, relationship factors as it relates to connections between the Latinx community and black community. My, my uncle Francisco, he is from Mexico. So my uncle Pancho married my auntie Lena, who's from Mexico. And so whenever I go down to Arizona, I'm usually the oddball out because I can't speak Spanish. So like literally we're around the fire or we'll even go to Mexico, go to the beach for the weekend, whatever it may be. And everybody's talking to Spanish about auntie is translating for me. But that's the only time I actually get to see my cousin Brandon, who I used to babysit and watch growing up. I used to take him to football games and things of that nature. The issue, though, was that his sister was born in the U.S. He was born in Mexico when they first came over. And that's so like that's the only time I get a chance to see him. Right. But there's so much in terms of that connective tissue of, of community. And a lot of these factors in terms of why my, my uncle Francisco and his wife, you know, tried to come to the U.S. to have a better life and to have a better situation. I know that very intimately because that's a part of my family tree in that regard. And they played a huge role in my life growing up. So I have a sensibility there that maybe others don't. Not saying that that's a connection in the book, but there is that universality of shared experiences and the importance of community and looking out for each other. And so let's talk that, about that a little bit because you mentioned in the book how trauma is baked into Black culture. And I want to talk about how, why should, Lat and I feel like trauma is also baked into Latin and many other cultures, but, uh, and there's some similarities, even though there's some intricacies that are different, right? And especially how we, whether heal, how we deal, how we neglect, how we, you know, internalize all that trauma. So could you tell us a little bit about what can other communities uh, learn, like our Latino community, our Asian community, all these other communities? What can we learn from your book's message? I think the, the interesting thing about trauma that I don't think that people understand about it is that it actually rewires your brain. Unfortunately, like, unfortunately, we talk about trauma. We talk about like, oh, it's this experience. It was bad. Just move on right? in many instances. But when somebody has actually experienced a real traumatic incident so much that it triggers such a visceral and emotional response, it rewires the brain and your, your body is in self-preservation mode. And that's what you're left with. And then with self-preservation mode, you're typically going to enter into fear state relatively quickly, whether it's you're going to engage in fight or, or flight. So some people utilize avoidance. Some people get really aggressive. They puff their chest out, right? And literally what's happening, it's the brain trying to defend itself from something that it perceives to be very similar to something that's happened that calls for significant hurt and pain. What's fascinating about trauma and what we're seeing in research, it also can actually impact your genes. So trauma, because of your neural network and now processing of genetic makeup and code, can actually be passed along genetically, which is also a fascinating thing that's kind of emerging in the literature. 
So we have neural networks, we have genetic passing along of traumatic trauma, and then we also have, you started this session with narratives. Let's think about now if my great-grandmother experienced something traumatic, it rewires her brain, it causes a heightened state of cortisol, which isn't good for health, right? Then we have the impact of then how do we engage with cortisol spikes of stress and things of that nature, which can lead to unhealthy behaviors, which is eating the wrong food, smoking, drugs, alcoholism, ah! And we see that on Indian reservations, higher levels of instances of alcoholism. This stuff isn't random in the way that it, it manifests itself in a community. In different communities, it will manifest itself differently, right? So we have that element of it, changing the brain, rewiring, and now there's an emotional state. If we have this emotional state, how do you deal with your children? What do you communicate to your children? What do you pass it? They, now your children genetically may be more predisposed to higher cortisol and anxiety because of the environment. And now that's being compounded by grandma or mom telling you stories that maybe you haven't experienced yourself, but sharing how that made them feel, how it hurt them, how it impact their community. And this is what we don't do. This is what we do do. This is we avoid banking institutions because your great great grandmother was a part of the Freedmen's Bank and they were putting money into these banks and then the money was taken out of those banks to finance home ownership in white communities and the very black people who were funding these banks weren't getting the money and then the company went bankrupt and everybody lost all their money. So we don't trust banks because this is what happened. Now, today, when we see generation, 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 and there's no diversity of social capital, which I talk about in the book, and you're just in the same bubble, same messages, same paradigm, what happens is that it becomes a part of family culture, community culture, group thinking dynamic. And we stop questioning at some point why we believe what we believe. We just know that everybody that I love and trust, they don't do it, and they tell me the same thing. So if that's my social dynamic, my social capital structure, I'm going to lean into the people that I trust. And that, in my opinion, Jen, I believe that that is just as much as financial literacy than what we consider to be financial literacy in terms of what's optimal. Because there are so many communities that we would say, oh, that's suboptimal. But unless you understand the systems in which that community is navigating, their access to or lack of access to certain things, you wouldn't understand that for what they're navigating, that's actually pretty spot on in terms of why you do things the way you do it. That trauma can be passed on and it can create an emotional state in individuals, psychologically, emotional, cortisol, all these different things. And you're not having to experience directly, but having family who've experienced it. So I touch on that in terms of in the book, there's an element where I speak to this, not in great length, but I talk about my perceptions of the world around me and how a lot of people don't realize is that my great grandmother was born in 1910. She passed away in 2007. And Jen, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother growing up. So when people would see me and we'd have a conversation about X, Y, and Z, you have to understand that what my grandmother felt and experienced Growing up and me spending time with her and her actually sharing stories and then starting to cry and bawl or how she had to walk because she couldn't get on a bus because it was full and there was no place for her. Like that is a direct one-to-one -one relationship 
that I'm having with her about her experiences of the world around her. For me, even though my grandmother was born way back in 1910, like this is like yesterday for me in terms of the way that I experienced. So we have to then kind of conceptualize that based on people that we don't know. Who are their connections? Who are in their social systems? Who's educating and providing them, providing them information? And oftentimes, some of these people experience very real things that we kind of sweep under the rug and say, oh, we, we made amends for that. It's, it's okay, let's move forward and let's just all be one big happy family. But that's like somebody comes up to you, punches you in the face, your eye blows up, you're, you're hurt, people are probably laughing at you, you feel embarrassed, like there's this emotional thing that's happening. And then that kid goes home, you all have the meeting with the principal or whatever it may be, and the principal says, you need to apologize. Parents say, you need to apologize. And that kid comes back and says, you know what? I'm really, really sorry. Will you accept my apology? And usually it happens behind closed doors. It doesn't happen publicly the way that the punch happened. It, you had to go through the healing process, probably still have to go to school and say, yo, what happened to you? You're having to carry all this baggage that then somebody gets to come in in a matter of an instance and just say, oh, I'm sorry. And that's it. That, that's a tough thing to navigate. Now that's just one punch. Let's talk about a multitude of punches that have happened historically that have a compound impact. And what's fascinating to me is that when we talk about traumatic instances, we understand exponentiation of sort of, right? Most people mathematically don't, but in terms of the markets, right? Like if you start really early, there's this compound effect of these positive things that can, can happen. Well, just as much as things can exponentiate or compound in terms of their effect positively in certain areas of our lives, like these negative instances, can actually have a compound effect negatively in our lives as well. Based on the things that I, miss, that I mentioned, changes in neural network, passing on genetic makeup, and then providing dissemination of information based on our experiences and our anecdotes for those things. That then kind of propels and perpetuates a mindset and idea that in some instances can keep us bounded from exploring opportunities that are readily available today that are at your fingertips. And it's just being able to sometimes be able to step outside of that to say not necessarily that things are, are perfect, but things are a lot better than what they once were. Even if we talk about women's rights, like up to, I can't remember what time frame it was, but it wasn't that long ago where women couldn't even have a bank account. So we can't sit here and say, well, oh, women are so behind because especially older generations generationally, you can't take somebody from who navigated the Great Depression and things of that nature and say, oh, well, why aren't they investing? Well, they didn't have access. So let's have the real conversation. Access was the issue that creates the paradigm that perpetuates itself in a way that somebody may groom their daughter to say, hey, well, you just need to go get a man that makes good money so he can take care of you. But why is she saying that? Because she probably navigated a system where she didn't have access. And through him was the only way you have access. A lot of times what we'll then say is that, well, it's just because so-and-so doesn't want to do it. No, you have to understand context, story, legislation, law, mindset, culture, and how this stuff perpetuates itself. And we would be, we're, we're being dishonest by not effectively having those conversations and understanding that we all have family history. I don't care if you're white, Latin, black, Asian, if you go into anybody's family, there is some beef within the family from stuff that happened years ago or something that somebody's grandma did or great grandma did that's still present today. 
but it makes perfect sense within the context of your family as to why we still hold a family grudge. Well, if you can understand that contextually within your family, now thinking empathetically, oh, I get it now. That's no different in other communities in terms of like, where it is because we do it too. And that's the beauty about the universality of these things that sometimes we just want to look at it from, well, I don't get slavery or I don't get all these. Other. You don't have to get that, but you can get the spirit of why family dynamics are the way they are, even within your household and why those things continue to have life and they breathe. And you're like, man, we should be over this by now. We're adults because it's not that easy. No, especially you mentioning the research saying that financial trauma can be passed on genetically and all these other layers, big picture, and how in all these other layers that you've mentioned that I feel like even though you wrote this one book, it could be a series of books talking about these different, I mean, I would recommend that just especially in the tone of how you wrote the book and your intent of uh, making sure like someone that maybe doesn't read books will be willing to read the book because I, I find it very engaging. As I mentioned, I have a short attention span and I didn't want to stop reading, but I had to stop read, you know, stop reading and and finish because there is just definitely so much I mean you've unpacked a lot that I feel like could still be unpacked some more in, in such a longer conversation but it's making sense to me just thinking to my family dynamics thinking to friends families dynamics and uh, husband's family dynamics on on this trauma and in all these things that you just mentioned and you mentioned finance or empathy or financial empathy and how that's important and not and I feel like it's important, yes, to in, in the understanding of what's going on with a family or a friend, but also for yourself, because I think we tend to be so hard on ourselves. We have to have that financial or that empathy for ourselves. Wow, that was a lot and so good, right? Well, there's a part two, because this conversation on financial trauma has not finished. So stay tuned for next week and we are going to continue this conversation in part two of this two-part series with Michael Thomas. 